Welcome back, campers. That's Genevieve. And that's Caitlin. And welcome back to Camping is Cancelled. Today, we're bringing you part two of our re-release coverage of the preppy murder case. And if you haven't already listened to part one, definitely stop here and play that first one or you will be very, very lost. When we last left off, Robert Chambers had been arrested and charged with second-degree murder of Jennifer Levin and was in protective custody at Rikers Island awaiting his bail hearing. Robert Chambers' bail application was scheduled for September 26, one month after the death of Jennifer Levin, and in that time, Detective Sheehan and Linda Farstein had worked tirelessly to rebuild the last five years of Robert's life to show the judge that Robert was definitely not the first-time offending altar boy that Jack Lippman wanted everyone to believe. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. The day of the bail hearing, everything Linda and Sheehan had turned up with Robert's drug abuse, burglarizing, and lying to police all got swept under one big Hail Mary rosary beady rug, thanks to a character letter on behalf of Robert that Jack Lintman presented to Judge Belf from none other than the Archbishop of New York, Thomas McCarrick. But this wasn't just any old Archbishop. Thomas McCarrick was actually on track to become the number one cardinal in the United States, with millions of devout Catholics following his leadership, so why on earth was he bothering to personally write a letter for Robert Chambers? Lead prosecutor Linda Farstein wondered the exact same thing and wasted no time paying a personal visit to the archbishop himself. When pressed, McCarrick admitted knowing none of the facts of the case at all, but he stood firm in the decision to support Robert, saying that it was his faith which compelled him to do so. Blech. Oh, God. I think it was possibly money. R- money and possibly Robert's mother having helped him. I don't know. I don't know. But that is odd. That is very odd. We'll get into it. But maybe let's not write a letter on somebody that we don't really know. Exactly. For somebody that's been arrested for literal murder and you don't know anything that's going on. Yeah. However, some interesting details soon came to light regarding McCarrick's relationship with the Chambers family. Oh, here we go. Remember in part one where we talked about how Phyllis Chambers made a career out of being a private nurse for prominent New York society? Apparently, Phyllis had cared for none other than the highly esteemed Cardinal Cook in his final days after a long battle with cancer. And while doing this, she had endeared herself to the Archdiocese of New York. So much so that Thomas McCarrick actually became the godfather of Robert Chambers. Mm. Forgot that fact. Oh, wow. Even though he had never actually spent any one-on-one time with him. So again, he still does not know him. No, he doesn't. And so it was just a symbolic thing. Yeah. In the 1980s, the Catholic Church in, the, in New York City was incredibly powerful and held a great deal of political and societal influence. And this letter from the Archbishop McCarrick rattled Judge Bell so much that he granted Robert Bale set at $150,000. That is astonishing to me because you know that Judge Bell had to have been through a lot of these proceedings. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you the level of power that he had to be like, you need to let this young man go. I mean, not let him up, but you know what I mean. And that it actually worked. Mm-mm-mm. And the judge was like, oh, shit. That that opinion carried so much weight. That is actually terrifying. Mm. Not surprising, though. No. And despite the media portraying him as a rich preppy, Robert's family did not have the means to pay this bail amount. And the Catholic Church came to the rescue again when an elderly Monsignor actually put up his entire life savings for bail for Robert no, Chambers. No. You couldn't have given that to dying children, oh, homeless people, hungry. The crackhead down the block. I like mean, someone, literally anyone. Anyone, <laughs> anyone else. <laughs> that, oh, God, that is heartbreaking. Claiming that he was following what Jesus Christ would have had him do 
and helping a person in need. Okay, I'm I'm going to take back what I said that it was heartbreaking because in my mind I'm picturing picturing somebody that is like senile and doesn't know what they're doing. But no, he gave the money. He would have known what the headlines were, what the charges were. It was for bail, not to help him with housing or whatever without Literally. knowing what happened. So, no. Denied. I'm going to walk that bag. Denied. On October 1st, the very same day that Robert was released on bail, Jack Littman held a press conference that aired all over the news, in which Robert Chambers appeared in a navy blue suit and a bright red tie, and read the following brief statement in the same cool, calculated tone that he had delivered his admission of guilt, saying, quote, I regret that nothing I can say or do can undo the terrible tragedy that has occurred. I am happy to be out of jail and very grateful for the support of my family, relatives, and friends. Quote. And y'all don't need to go look that up because I just read it exactly how Robert Chambers spoke it. Just no emotional affect whatsoever. No responsibility taken whatsoever. Again, it's giving Ezra McCandless and every other piece of shit that we've covered here that doesn't seem to care that they have just taken a life. After the airing of this press conference, another Catholic Monsignor named Thomas Leonard publicly came forward and offered for Robert Chambers to live with him in the parish home in Inwood, New York, while awaiting trial. This was huge for Robert's public perception. He was no longer in an orange jumpsuit sat behind bars at Rikers Island. He was quite literally being held and sheltered by the Catholic Church at every level. And who would need to be afraid of someone that an actual priest had living in their own home? That's some pretty brilliant brilliant work on the part of the defense i mm -hmm. i will say like damn that is cold but brilliant at this time we're going to press the fast forward button 33 whole years and pause for a bit at an interview that robert's girlfriend of that summer alex cap gave for amc's 2019 documentary series the preppy murder death in central park Adult Alex recalled that when Robert was released on bail, she had lied to her mother and said she was going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but she went to go visit Robert instead. Alex recalled a nagging feeling that she probably shouldn't accept Robert's invitation when she arrived for them to go and talk alone in his bedroom, but she went anyway and remembered her extremely 16-year-old self as feeling sad for this person that she'd been intimate with and believed that she was in love with. And we can't fault young Alex for that because, again, at this point, she's literally a child. The two of them had been sitting and talking in Robert's bedroom for about 30 minutes when Alex remembered noticing a giant pile of newspapers stacked on the floor beneath Robert's desk. She remembered how in the past she and Robert would talk about wanting to be famous, and in an effort to lighten the mood with some dark humor, she quipped, Boy, well, I guess you got what you wanted. You're famous. Ha ha ha. But in that moment, Alex described this weird smile, almost like a smirk, suddenly come over Robert's face, and it chilled Alex to her core, and finally she could no longer ignore that gnawing in her gut that Robert Chambers was not a good person. Heart racing, Alex said she slowly got up and made some excuse about needing to get home, and then ran as fast as she could all the way back. Alex Cap never spoke to Robert Chambers again. All right. 
were back in 1986. Now, there was never any question whether or not Robert Chambers killed Jennifer Levin in Central Park, but there was a huge question in this upcoming trial that the jury was going to have to decide, and that was whether or not Robert had the intent to kill Jennifer as the prosecution would argue, or if the jury believed Jack Littman. Jennifer's killing was merely a tragic accident resulting from the, quote, rough sex instigated by Jennifer Levin herself. A couple of weeks after Robert was released on bail, lead prosecutor Linda Farstein received a call from a detective who had some piping hot tea to spill about Robert. About a year previously, this detective had been investigating a felony burglary and larceny in the city. Fun fact time, because I had to look this up. For a burglary to be considered a felony, at least in the 1980s, the amount stolen in the burglary had to be in excess of $70,000. So on the fire escape of this burglarized apartment, law enforcement had found a driver's license belonging to none other than Robert Chambers. And when Robert was called into the police station for questioning, he claimed he'd lost the license a while back, and whoever robbed the place must have just picked it up. The detective admitted to Linda that at the time she had been taken with Robert's good looks. Why do all the adults in this fucking story have the hots for this kid? Ew. Ew, 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 ew. She was also taken with his polished prep school background and having no prior arrests. However, latent fingerprints had been recovered from the apartment's medicine cabinet. And now that they had fingerprints from Robert Chambers, Linda wasted no time having the latent print unit compare the prints recovered from the scene of the burglary to Robert Chambers. And wouldn't you know it, it was an immediate match. This revelation would be huge for the prosecution's case. And the more they kept digging into unsolved New York burglaries, they connected Robert with a man who was real bad news. A 20-something drug dealer named David Filyaw. Apparently, the two young men would regularly work together to burglarize Upper East Side apartments. And Filyaw was not only selling drugs, he had actually been arrested for raping and stabbing a 21-year-old female student at Columbia University five times after breaking into her dorm while she slept. Miraculously, she survived. Whenever these two worked together, Robert would play the clean-cut and good-looking white guy of their little operation. And since he had a friend from school and almost every Park Avenue building, the doorman would let him in without question. He'd go right up and try out doors until he found one unlocked. David Filyaw would wait at the bottom of the fire escape, and Robert would throw down whatever he had stolen from the apartment's balcony. Robert Chambers was indicted again just a couple of weeks after being released on bail with three charges of felony burglary, and Jack Lippman knew that Robert's good boy defense was now in serious trouble. He had been planning to have his charming and handsome client take the stand during the trial, but in the light of these felony charges, the prosecution would be able to absolutely pummel Robert during cross-examination and expose his history of crime and lying to the police, which would make it more difficult for a jury to believe that brutalized body of Jennifer Levin was merely the result of a tragic accident. With the trial looming closer, it was time for a media Hail Mary. On November 10, 1986, Jennifer's mother, Ellen Levin, said she stopped dead in her tracks in front of an airport newsstand and stared in horror. There on the cover of a New York magazine was none other than Robert Chambers, giving a smoldering movie star stare directly to the camera and sporting a navy blue power suit and red tie. The cover headline read, East Side Story, Robert Chambers, Jennifer Levin, and the Death That Shocked the City. 
and there was a picture of Jennifer on the front also, but it was a tiny black and white, and her face is barely visible beneath a pair of giant sunglasses. What followed inside was a full-length story that we won't bother doing a deep dive into here, but as you can imagine, it is a basically a word-vomit version of the full-colored, larger-than-life cover photo of Robert Chambers and the tiny, grainy, colorless photo of Jennifer Levin. So this is really that beginning of this narrative. Well, not beginning because he's already been, mm-hmm. you know, shrouded by the Catholic Church, but where they are attempting to diminish and shrink down everything about Jennifer Levin. Let's put her down here in the corner mm-hmm. in black and white, not even let you see her eyes. Like, here's Robert, the main yes. star of this, the yes. sad ultra boy who got in the caught in the middle of a sex scandal. Yeah, the handsome, poor, unfortunate soul. And even that title, East Side Story, is, I believe, that's a reference to kind of a flip side of West Side Story, mm-hmm. which is about basically two lovers that were doomed from the beginning. And this is not a love story. Mm-mm. This is not something to be romanticized in any way. And so that title in and of itself is gross for immediately putting that, this whole thing being very cinematic mm-hmm. into people's minds. And as we will go on to see everything else that is done by the media is to make Robert Chambers out to be this polished, larger-than-life, sympathetic person. And Jennifer Levin, I mean, just to continue to diminish her, Mm -hmm. shit on her, make her seem out to be the one that caused this, that brought it on herself, that brought it on Robert. And... It's just shameful. It's shameful. And I cannot imagine truly what her mother felt seeing that. Oh, my gosh. But the enrage <laughs> that would fill me oh yeah oh i would you know burn that with just my eyes you know ellen like was seeing red mm. or that feeling when you get so mad you like like i gotta sit down because i think i'm gonna black out mm-hmm. that man gosh As the months leading up to Robert's trial continued, both the defense and the prosecution were interviewing Robert and Jennifer's friends, and at some point one of Jennifer Levin's friends apparently shared with Jack Lintman that Jennifer had kept a diary. And what's more, this friend also thought that in the diary, Jennifer might have mentioned things about Robert Chambers. In light of this information, Robert's defense said that they were entitled full access to this diary and tried to subpoena it. And of course, Jack Lintman couldn't waste this opportunity by just calling it a diary. Nope. He dropped a bomb to the tabloid media that it was a sex diary. Where Jennifer kept salacious details about all of her sexual encounters. In actuality, the supposed sex diary was nothing more than a date book to keep track of her schedule. And it was so benign that her family said Jennifer had kept it in the kitchen next to the phone. Mm. Okay, so it wasn't a sex diary. And even if it was, it's her diary. It's her personal fucking messages, her... Yeah, it has... So, because she had... Even if she did have one, so she deserved to die? Who cares? Like, Like, she deserved to be attacked. She deserved to have her teeth not loose in her skull. I'd love to read every teenage girl's personal writings. Like, and see how damning they are. Yeah, that's... God, disgusting <sighs> sex diary that sounds like if they'd caught a president with something <laughs> literally <sketchy>. <laughs> like, president it, biden's sex diary it's, I'm, I'm laughing i am not laughing because i think this is funny it's because it's rage laughing yes it's like i'm laughing so that i don't put well, my fist through a laughing because it's so ridiculous yeah it's ludicrous <sighs> absolutely ludicrous So, naturally, Jennifer's family was not so keen to just hand over one of their daughter's personal belongings to be warped and twisted around by Littman and aid in the defense of their daughter's killer. They refused to comply to the subpoena, and a very public back-and-forth legal drama ensued. Tabloid headlines literally said, Sensational new charge, Jennifer kept sex diary. 
And this was a very intentional move on Littman's part to plant seeds with the entire city and any potential jurors that Jennifer Levin was essentially asking for it. And that Robert Chambers was a devout Irish Catholic who was provoked by her relentless and unwanted sexual advances. And while under normal circumstances, he would never consider hurting anyone. This young woman, this slut, pushed him to react violently to defend himself. This is a moment where I want to tell you, Caitlin, something that I don't think I told you about my trip to New York. Mm-hmm. When I arrived, I was waiting for my friends and I went and sat at one of those little bar restaurants in the airport and I started having a conversation with a man that I would say he was in his mid to late 60s very nice we started talking just chit-chatting and what do you do oh this is what I do blah 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 well he is a born and bred New Yorker grew up on Long Island has been there his whole life and I said that I was a true crime podcaster Mm -hmm. and he immediately was like oh that's cool and then he told me about some members and of his family that work in the legal system so I was like okay, I feel like I'm kind of getting a little bit of a rapport with this man. Mm -hmm. He seems cool. He seems chill. I'm going to ask him if he remembers anything about the Jennifer Levin murder. And so I said, do you remember anything about the murder of Jennifer Levin? Because you would have been, he would have been like in his early 20s when this happened. And he goes, oh, no. He's like, I, no, I, I'm sorry. That name just doesn't ring a bell. And then I said, do you remember hearing about someone named Robert Chambers? Mm. And he goes, oh, it was like a light bulb mm. went on in his face. And then he goes, oh, yeah. And then he goes, he killed that girl in Central Park. And Caitlin, I shit you not, the next words out of this man's mouth were, well, you know, she was a real little sicko. <laughs> yeah. Immediately, I was like, and we're done. I was like, oh, okay, well. My yeah, friends are yeah, here, nice bye. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, hell no. And that just is the perfect fucking example. He... You literally just said, oh, yeah, he killed that girl. Yeah. But, but you know, she was a real sicko. To, and yeah. But she's somebody's child who deserved to die. Yeah. She, because she likes sex. Yeah. And. Yeah. Guys, <laughs> there's no sex in the story to even fucking begin with. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, it is astounding that this is almost, we're now in 2023. This happened in 1986. So we're like almost 40 years after this happened, all I had to do was say the name of Robert Chambers to somebody who was in his generation and also a male. Hmm. He still associates Jennifer Levin with slut, sicko, whore. Isn't that... I mean, I had no words. My jaw hit the bar. It was where is unbelievable. It any, where is, like, in any case, you're talking about a murder, put a label like that on yeah. the victim. Yeah. What the hell? I would still be outraged even if she had, like, been a madam at a whorehouse. You know, like, the, the outrage would be... <laughs> okay, she wanted sex. <laughs> yeah. She like, didn't want to die. Yeah, exactly. The, it was one of the most appalling things i have ever heard somebody immediately say wow yeah yep so with that we're gonna talk about um the madonna and the horror complex very briefly because it's very relevant to this conversation and the catholic church and as you know if you have spent any time in growing up in church around somebody who is religious the madonna and the horror complex is basically just when women who like sex 
women who are sexually promiscuous outside of marriage, and I say sexually promiscuous, I mean active, outside of only ever being active with one man behind closed doors, probably with the lights off, not looking at each other. Socks on. Yeah, (laughs) socks. But sex is used as a way to divide women Mm -hmm. into these two categories. You're either a Madonna or a whore. There is no, there is no in between. And Jennifer Levin is being painted out as the whore and that is really all you need to know about that and if you're curious google it because we could do a whole fucking podcast series on this so yeah finally linda farstein was able to put an end to these sex diary shenanigans by having the levin family agree to have judge bell himself review the diary in chambers to determine if there were any references to sex that warranted Robert's defense being entitled to it at all, and if not, Littman would be forced to drop it. After reviewing the diary, it was determined by Judge Bell that this so-called sex diary contained zero references to sex whatsoever, but the damage had already been done to Jennifer's character from all these Jennifer kept a sex diary headlines and at this point it would now be impossible for any potential jurors to hear the name Jennifer Levin and also men 40 years later as I experienced in the bar and not associate it with sex diary or rough sex which is precisely what Jack Lippman intended. As all this was going on activists and the guardian angels actually picketed and marched holding justice for Jennifer signs outside of the courthouse for months leading up to the trial in show of support for Jennifer. And in some small way that was able to give her family encouragement that not everyone in the city was following for this appalling blame the victim campaign. And while there was no question that Robert Chambers was the one whose actions resulted in Jennifer's death, in prepping for the trial, the prosecution could not find one single medical examiner who could definitively say what Jennifer's official cause of death was, which meant it was up to the prosecution to suggest something to the jury as the murder weapon that matched the physical evidence collected from the crime scene as well as the marks on Jennifer's body. And as it happened, this piece of evidence had been with Jennifer the entire time, her denim jacket, which she is wearing in a photograph taken with friends the same night of the murder at Dorian's, and was also found completely removed, lying next to her body at the crime scene with multiple visible splatters of blood and saliva on it. These blood splatters were especially significant because when Jennifer's body was discovered, the only place that she had blood visible on her body was found to be coming from her mouth. If the prosecution could connect the blood on her jacket as belonging exclusively to Jennifer, they could make an incredibly strong case that after punching her so hard in the face that he broke his hand, Robert Chambers had placed the jacket over Jennifer's mouth and throat and applied repeated prolonged force by crushing the jacket down and readjusting and pressing it down again and again as she struggled beneath it until she was dead. And the prosecution thought this would be a slam dunk, especially because they now had a new forensic evidence tactic to bring to the table that in 1987 had unbelievably never before been used in a criminal courtroom in the United States, DNA. Detective Sheehan actually hand-delivered Jennifer's denim jacket to the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia for an in-depth DNA analysis And after six months of waiting, 
the preliminary test results came back as the blood and saliva on the jacket being a complete match for Jennifer Levin. But when this groundbreaking DNA evidence was presented by Linda Farstein to Judge Bell in preliminary trial hearings, the judge denied the prosecution being able to use it in the courtroom as evidence, saying that because the science was so new, he just didn't feel that it could be trusted. This was a devastating blow to the prosecution because even though they could still mention the presence of the jacket at the crime scene and their belief that it played a role, they no longer had the weight of hard DNA evidence that could convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the denim jacket was the murder weapon. Ah, God, that is so frustrating. As frustrating as it was to not be able to use the DNA, there was still a key piece of evidence that could prove there was intention on the part of Robert Chambers to end Jennifer Levin's life, her neck. Mm. In the lead up to the trial, the rough sex defense and the blame the victim defense was everywhere. But once crime scene photos surfaced of Jennifer's neck, absolutely covered in horrific, violent bruises, it was impossible to ignore that something wasn't adding up with Robert's claim he had acted in one swift motion with his arm. Duh. Right. Every expert that the prosecution consulted agreed that the marks on Jennifer's neck were not from one act of force, but were the result of repeated acts of force and prolonged pressure that would have had to be applied to her neck for at least four full fucking minutes. Oh my god. Four full minutes. Do all the little one, two Mississippis that you can yeah. to four minutes. Yeah. They don't even make you do your, is it when CPR? you do CPR? Yeah. They don't even make you do the staying mm -mm. alive chest compressions for that long because you get exhausted. Yep. Four minutes to cause her death after she had already become limp and lost consciousness. And that was intentional. <sighs> In any murder trial, the prosecution bears the burden of proof beyond any reasonable doubt to secure conviction. And while that doesn't actually have to include a motive, it certainly helps in making all the pieces fit. And there's maybe only one thing Jack Littman had said this entire time that we happen to agree with. People don't just kill people for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's always that energy shift in the seconds before an interaction turns deadly, and we think it's natural as human beings to want to understand why. If for no other reason, then we want to reassure ourselves that we're not in danger of this shift ever happening in our own interactions. In this case, the only why Robert Chambers ever gave was absolute bullshit. So what really happened between him and Jennifer? Based on the facts that the case and the evidence presented at the crime scene, Linda Farstein and Detective Sheehan had a few different ideas for what possibly could have gone down that night. And since none of these have ever been confirmed for sure, you'll have to decide for yourself what you think. Now, we think that Jennifer and Robert went to Central Park to do something they had already done together, which was to have sex. And at the crime scene, a pair of white underwear presumed to be Jennifer's was found abandoned on the grass a few yards away from her body. Linda believed that where the underwear was found was where the two of them had initially sat down to do whatever they were going to do sexually, and that was when a conflict started. 1. Jennifer could have begun lecturing Robert again about doing drugs, which could have made him frustrated and angry. 2. Robert may have tried to perform sexually and couldn't. She could have said something or made fun of him, and he got angry. Or 3. And this one is the one that carries the most weight for us personally. After Jennifer had removed her underwear, she stepped off to pee in some bushes, and when she returned, she caught Robert rifling through her purse and wallet, which definitely tracks considering everything we know about his stealing and drug addictions by now. Mm -hmm. Like any normal person who thinks they're with someone who's a friend that they can trust, she would have been like, Robert, seriously? She likely would have threatened to go back to Dorian's and tell everyone, and this would have been the final straw for Robert. He would have grabbed her and attempted to stop her, and from here, things turned deadly. Mm -hmm. This theory was supported by something else unique about the crime scene. 
and that was the manner in which the contents of Jennifer's purse were strewn in a line from where her underwear was to where her body was found. And furthermore, according to Detective Sheehan, the manner she was left with her clothing lifted and legs positioned apart would make it appear to the untrained eye that she was the victim of rape when in reality there was no sex to have been at all, and Robert Chambers thought he was being really fucking clever. I definitely agree with that last one. That Mm -hmm. really addresses all of the elements that we've been through before. Yes, especially with how everything's been kind of falling apart for Robert. Mm -hmm. And that that little group that he hung out with was kind of his last place that he hadn't lost Mm -hmm. yet. And his little narcissistic facade that he was maintaining with everyone of being that, you know, cool, sexy, ugh, I don't even like to say hot because I, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. That was about to be destroyed when she went back and was like, Alex Cap just humiliated him mm-hmm. and people were already probably kind of like snickering behind his back. Right. And then... You know, 30 minutes later, Jennifer's going to go back to Dorian's and be like, uh, this motherfucker just tried to steal a bunch of money from me. They're going to be like, oh, uh, what you a know, loser. yeah, that would have yeah, been. But yeah, I completely, completely agree with that line of thinking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in prepping for the trial, both the prosecution and defense were seeking expert witnesses whose testimonies could align with their separate arguments on ligature strangulation, asphyxial deaths, and chokeholds. And while it's no secret that in a criminal trial, expert witnesses can be found to argue just about anything and make it seem legit, it's worth noting here that Jack Littman actually approached forensic pathologist and leading expert Dr. Warner Spitz to work on behalf of Robert's defense. But after Dr. Spitz spent time examining the evidence, he actually refused to work on behalf of the defense and became the lead expert witness for the prosecution because he agreed with their theory that Robert had used Jennifer's own jacket to strangle her. The lead expert for Robert's defense ended up being a man named Dr. Ronald Kornblum who at the time had written extensively about, this is so fucking stupid, y'all, police chokeholds. And they planned to use him to corroborate Robert's version of events that he'd wrapped one free arm around Jennifer's neck and flipped her over his shoulder onto the ground and accidentally killed her. And again, he, in that swift movement, knocked some teeth out, eye bulged, Scratches Got on scratched him. up. Jennifer scratched all over all her, her body. Her clothes are displaced. Her jacket came off with blood all over it. She has defensive wounds on herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The crescent mark, fingernail. I just like... Police chokehold. The ludicrousy. And also, if it was a police chokehold, he clearly didn't do it right. And with the pool of 500 potential jurors jury selection dragged on for months and the judge decided to hold individual interviews with each potential juror because the intense media coverage of this case had made it next to impossible to find fair and impartial jurors apparently during the jury selection process one young woman who was being interviewed as a potential juror actually came in, saw Robert Chambers sitting next to his lawyer, and when the judge asked her if she had any impressions of the defendant, she said, quote, he's really much better looking in person. <laughs> Ma'am, please excuse yourself Ma'am, out. the exit is to your left. Man, this is not a Wendy's. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> huh, this is a murder trial, oh, and you man. are looking at a person who has been charged with a horrendous murder. 
He's really Guys, much better looking in person. Ted Bundy was apparently good looking. He was not. Zac Efron, who played him, was. Mm, mm, the real one, mm. no. Yeah. And he was still a serial fucking killer. I mean, like, what in the hell? I Looks don't, have nothing to do with it. I don't understand. And yeah. again, look into his eyes and you will know that he is creepy. <laughs> look into his eyes because there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's there. no soul. Ah. So with the pool of 500 potential jurors finally narrowed down to 12, oh my God, all of the drama and momentum that had been building for nearly two years was finally going to culminate in a trial. And the notoriety that this case had developed could not be understated. Everyone was desperate to know what really happened between Robert and Jennifer on the night of August 26th in Central Park. Media swarmed the courthouse, filling the streets and peering down from rooftops. And every day was agonizing for the Levin family. On October 21st, 1987, the trial finally began. And Jennifer's family wept in the courtroom as Linda Farstein placed a giant photo of the young woman directly in front of the jury that had been taken with her friends just hours before her murder. And in her opening remarks, Linda did everything she could to make sure Jennifer Levin came alive as a loving daughter, great student, and friend who was living a vibrant and happy life before Robert Chambers took it all away from her. And chillingly, she implored the jury that over the course of this trial to not make the same mistake that Jennifer had in trusting Robert Chambers. The first witness the prosecution called was none other than our friend from the very beginning, Pat Riley, the cyclist who found Jennifer's body in Central Park. On cross-examination, Jack Littman absolutely pummeled poor Pat, questioning her knowledge of the distance she had been from Jennifer's body and her ability to visualize measurements and feet. Like saying, but how can you possibly know you were X amount of feet from her body? Fuck off. Oh my god. She saw her. <sighs> it does, like, she Why does that matter? Is, yeah. It's just a way of trying to like befuddle people with 100%. weird by talking in circles to make them stumble over themselves mm -hmm. on the stand and appear to make her unreliable to the jury yeah he also raked the detectives and police officers who assessed jennifer levin's crime scene over the coals accusing them of being sloppy and botching the scene and challenged everything that detective sheehan testified under oath to witnessing at the scene to diminish his credibility he did everything in his power to make control, to maintain control of the courtroom. And years later, an interviewed juror remembered that it was impossible for everyone to not be impressed by his confidence and charisma. As the trial progressed, it continued to be at the top of the news every single night and on the front page of every paper. And media would have to part like a sea to let the legal teams through to the courthouse daily. On day nine of the trial, Linda placed a few of Jennifer Levin's friends on the stand to testify as she tried to paint an accurate picture of the events at Dorian's Red Hand the night of the murder, and also hoped to show the jury with stories from her friends that Jennifer was not the sex-obsessed and loose young woman that Littman had been feeding to the media. However, this proved to be a double-edged sword, because under cross-examination, Lindman was able to dig out answers from Jennifer's friends to support his claim that she was a sexually aggressive young woman with multiple sexual partners. Who cares? Oh Who God. cares? Who would the they have been saying that a teenage boy who hooked up a bunch was sexually yeah, aggressive? Yeah, what is Robert? Yeah, they would call him uh, sleeping with two women at the same time. Yeah. They would say he was a charmer, that he liked women, that ladies he was man. a Casanova. Yeah, a ladies' man. Yeah. <sighs> it would have been made cute and sexy and, mm -mm. again, like romantic and cinematic. But no, Jennifer was loose, sexually aggressive. That makes her sound like some sort of animal. Like, like a lioness. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. According to her friends and family who were present in the courtroom, everything was choreographed by Jack Littman to twist everything that was said about Jennifer into a denigration of her character and memory for no other reason than that she had been open with her friends about liking sex and having multiple sexual partners. Yikes. Yikes, yikes, yikes. The, the only thing that I think is important 
just to mention here, and it's not, I don't want to drag Linda Farstein because in this case, I think she genuinely does good work, but Mm -hmm. it shows you that reality of the time that she had to work super hard to be like, oh, Jennifer didn't like sex. She wasn't really into it. And that that was the position that she took. Mm She instead of that door shouldn't even have been open for Jat Lippman to be like, actually, she did. It should have been who cares who if cares. she cares exactly. It should have been Linda Farstein asking Jennifer's friends, How many sexual partners have you had? and having a fucking line of them up there being well, like, Raise your hand if you had sexual history with Robert Chambers himself. Seriously. Like how many hands would have flown seriously. up? Seriously. Yeah. And it was just that, in my opinion, should never even have been a part of the conversation. But for whatever reason, it was made the main part of the conversation. Despite the horror of having to sit through the slander of her daughter's memory... Ellen Levin did not miss a single day of the court proceedings and said that by showing up every day, this was the last piece of business that she had to do for her daughter. Jurors and media recalled that for the duration of the trial, Robert Chambers sat perfectly still and stared vacantly ahead. No tears, no reaction whatsoever. His mother and father were there, and his mother Phyllis was often seen in footage clutching Jack Lippman's arm as they entered and left the courthouse. And, also worth mentioning, Robert's new girlfriend was there every single day, a beautiful young woman named Sean Covell. And whether their relationship was legitimate or a publicity stunt to make Robert appear like a safe, caring young man... Sean seemed completely smitten with Robert, and her presence definitely softened the overall image of Robert Chambers. I'm sure Jack Lippman was like, Sean, you better be there. You better be there. You better be there. And look good. Uh But not too good. Because God forbid, people think you like sex. (laughs) Members of the Catholic clergy sat in the courtroom on the side of Robert's supporters. It was definitely another very intentional move on the part of Robert's defense to make him look like a young, clean, upstanding Catholic boy. Lippman played Robert's videotaped police interview in the courtroom for the jury and used his version of events to try and convince the jury that clearly Jennifer had been the aggressor. She wanted the sex. He was not interested. She was the one to blame for how the events panned out. As all this went on, the word was that Littman was actually preparing Robert to take the stand in his own murder trial, and Linda Farstein was counting on this so that she could then expose Robert's sociopathy, his ability to lie, and his history of crimes. But when Littman became aware of the sheer number of provable crimes that Chambers had committed and that the prosecution intended to bring up during cross-examination, he held Robert back from the stand. And without the chance to ask Robert questions under oath and expose him for who he really was, the prosecution could not even bring them up in the courtroom. On day 23 of the trial, Linda Farstein's medical examiner presented the results of Jennifer's autopsy. They presented that her cause of death had been asphyxial, but exactly how that happened was again forced to be left much more open to interpretation, especially without the prosecution being allowed to present the DNA evidence from Jennifer's denim jacket as blood connected to the blood on her mouth. Because of this lack of evidence as to what exactly caused her asphyxiation, Jack Lippman was able to use his own expert witnesses to throw weight behind Robert's claims that the marks on Jennifer's neck and cause of death had been from a single pull of Robert's arm when he briefly put her in the police chokehold. 
He called up expert witness after expert witness and got them to do so much back and forth scientific testimony that the jury was completely overwhelmed and muddled by the sheer volume of it all. And that was exactly what he had intended. The air between Jack Littman and Linda Farstein in the courtroom was openly thick with hostility, and there were so many sidebars throughout the trial that the jurors felt like they were going insane with how painfully long and drawn out this trial had become. Finally, on day 46, it was time for closing arguments. According to Robert's defense, it was an accident, and Jennifer shouldn't have been such a slut, or she would probably be alive today. According to the prosecution, regardless of whatever transpired between Robert and Jennifer in the hours and minutes leading up to her fateful encounter at Central Park, in the span of three to five minutes, Robert Chambers formed and executed the intent to kill Jennifer Levin by applying repeated immense force to her neck without relief. On March 17, 1988, the jury was sequestered and began deliberations. After five days of deliberations, the jury could still not decide if Robert had intended to kill Jennifer or if it was a tragic accident, and they could not reach a decision on whether or not he was guilty of the charge of second-degree murder. Eight jurors said yes, four jurors said no, and they were in a deadlock. By day nine of the deliberations, the stress among the jurors had mounted so much so that one juror faked a heart attack to be excused. People were breaking down in tears, and one juror apparently tried to barricade himself in a refrigerator because another juror found him so annoying that he had threatened to kill him. Oh, my God. Okay. This uh, doesn't even sound real. It sounds like an episode of The Office. Honestly. At this point, the defense was under immense pressure to come up with a plea so the grueling ordeal could finally be over. Littman proposed that Robert would plead guilty to manslaughter in the first degree, which did not require intent, but Robert would have to admit that he had alone had caused the death of Jennifer Levin. So unsatisfying. <sighs> just <sighs> If the Levins did not accept this plea bargain, Robert would be out again until the next trial, and that whole process could take another two whole years. On March 25, 1988, a massive press conference was held with everyone involved in the trial present, and the Manhattan District Attorney declared that he could not convict Chambers on circumstantial evidence and that the plea argument was in the best interest of justice. Robert Chambers pleaded guilty to the charges of first-degree manslaughter and was sentenced on April 15th to 5 to 15 years in prison. At this same press conference, he gave a brief statement in a flat, monotone voice, saying he never wanted any of this to happen to anybody. No, you didn't want it to happen to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that Jennifer's name would live on. Not through memories, but by her family and her feelings. Fuck off. Okay. Okay. I I just want to wrap those words up, put them in a little ball in my fist and shove it up his ass. I mean, they did say that his grades were abysmal, so. And then, in a final insult to the Levin family, Robert Chambers was permitted by the judge to spend the night at home with his mother before surrendering himself to begin his sentence. Would have been nice if Jennifer could have had one more night with her mother before she was, you know, Mm, murdered. Yeah, yeah, would have been nice. The following morning, Robert was led from his apartment in a bulletproof vest by Detective Sheehan through a sea of media to the Department of Corrections to begin serving his time. He was escorted into a cell, and Robert Chambers threw up before turning around and saying to Detective Sheehan, I'll never get used to the smell. Mm. Slam goodbye. And while it was somewhat of an anticlimactic legal ending... This might have been the end of all the media attention surrounding this case, but the press was about to be handed one more bombshell. On May 15, 1988, one of the Upper East Side girls who hung around with Robert Chambers actually contacted a reporter from the wildly popular show A Current Affair and told this reporter there was a videotape of Robert that they were going to want to see. That very same night, A Current Affair released a special episode of the tape, and all hell broke loose. 
This tape of Robert Chambers had been taken on December 17th. 1987, between when he was out on bail and the start of his murder trial. In the tape, Robert Chambers appears to be hanging out in someone's bedroom with Sean Covell and a bunch of other attractive young women, all of whom are dancing around in their underwear. And I am no expert, but it's pretty apparent from the video that they're all drunk or high. I mean, they're, they've been partaking in something. And one of the young women who is only wearing a lingerie is literally, oh my God, this makes me feel unwell. While Robert Chambers is sitting on the floor, she's literally rubbing her ass like all up and down his back and like grinding on him. And while they're all sitting there, Robert picks up a doll off of the floor, turns, looks at the camera, twists the doll's head around, and then says in this horrible, like, creepy, disgusting voice from the pit of hell, My name is... And then he goes, Oops, I think I killed her. What the fuck? If this tape had surfaced before the trial began, it would definitely have had an effect on the verdict. Because while it obviously didn't prove anything, without a doubt it showed the entire world who Robert Chambers really was. Not the innocent altar boy, but the kind of person who would joke about the person he has just been charged with murdering. In the years that followed, Robert Chambers, unsurprisingly, did not reform in prison. He got busted for drugs and ended up serving the full 15 years, and after his release in 2003, was barely out for a year before he got arrested for driving with a suspended license and having cocaine and heroin in his car. And for that, he got 100 days in prison. In 2007, he had the very same girlfriend from way back when the trial was happening, Sean Covell, and the two of them were busted for selling cocaine out of Robert's apartment. And this is incredibly heartbreaking. Apparently, Sean Covell was so, so ill from drug abuse disorder that the judge actually took pity on her and sent her directly to rehab without giving her any prison time. But Robert Chambers received 19 more years in prison. Almost four times as much as his minimum sentence had been for murdering Jennifer Levin. As of this past summer, July 2023, he is released and is walking out free amongst the world. So, that's the end of that story. (laughs) Um, Except, when the trial was finally over, Jennifer Levin's mother, Ellen, was contacted by Attorney General Robert Abrams, and he actually sent her a letter about a bill he was working on, called the Rape Shield Bill, which said that a crime victim's sexual past cannot be brought up into court. So Ellen called the attorney general and said, yep, track him with what you're doing with this bill. But speaking from personal experience of what happened to my daughter, what about deceased victims? They should never have their sexual past introduced in a case where it bears no relevance. The Attorney General completely agreed, and together, the two of them formed a lobby group called Justice for All. And over the next 10 years, they passed 13 pieces of legislation in Albany, New York, to protect and advocate for victims of violent crime. We just have to say, Ellen Levin literally existing and somehow carrying on after the horrific murder of your child 
not only is that an astounding accomplishment in and of itself, but the fact that Ellen went on to use this, this horrible, horrible thing that happened to her family to become an advocate for victims, just incredible. And Ellen Levin would say herself that the only reason she was able to accomplish all of this wasn't just her. It was her and Jen together. And that is the end of the story. That is the end end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to it. Again, if this was your second time with us, thank you. And if it's your first time, hello. Thank you, too. (laughs) Yes. And with that, be sure to like and follow. Give us a good review, pretty please. Mm -hmm. Um, Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Camping is Cancelled. Send Mm -hmm. us your case recommendations, your Mm -hmm. personal stories to campingiscanceled at gmail.com. Yes. And don't forget that we have our own website that you can find links to our personal favorite items, Mm -hmm. our affiliate link with Turning Hearts. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And everything else we just mentioned yep. at campingiscanceled.com. Yes. Catch you back here next week. Bye. Bye.